let's go ahead and begin. Thank you guys for getting up early and being here. Uh, what a blessing to see so many guys uh, willing to get up and study God's Word together. Make yourself at home. Um, there's a restroom right here, so if you need to go to the restroom, it's there. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer? What do you guys want to pray for us as we begin? Go ahead, Father. Father, thank you for this uh, morning. We can rise and come and hear the, the goodness and the cleanness and the truth of your word. I just pray you bless our morning. Uh, help us take it to the day, take it to our heart, uh, take it to the world. And we'll live that out to uh, this day. That's destiny and this preparation. I just pray you bless uh, us in this time as we come together to grow together as brothers in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Lord, just to lavish in your word, Lord, that we uh, hope to be effective, Lord, as we go out to plant in D.C. and give them the community here. Lord, we just lift this in Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Preston. Well, let me just talk a little bit about <clears throat> my goal for our men's discipleship time. Um, I, Really, I want this to be just part of the life of our church. So it's it's not so much uh, a six month course or a one year course. It's we'll just keep it going all the time. We'll have twice twice a month on every month that we can uh, with with holidays and stuff like that. There'll be months where we have just one. In fact, in November and December we have just just one each of those months. But kind of the first and third Thursdays of the month, just have it in your mind. Uh, six a.m. We're going to be studying and we're we're going to work through. Um, topics that will help us lead our homes, that will help us be leaders in the church, um, that will help us ground us in theology. Um, But also, I I really want these to be practical in the sense that we will go deep into theology at times, but always with an eye towards how should this affect our lives? How does this impact us? I think there is that, that danger for all of us when we talk about theology to get wrapped up in uh, the, just the joy of learning and thinking deeply about things. And sometimes that, that does not connect to how we actually live our lives. And so we want to be careful, morning. We want to be careful to always connect what we're learning to how we live. And the reason I began with a men's study is because the health of the church uh, depends upon men being willing to lead, being prepared to lead, leading in their own individual lives, leading in their families, and then leading in the church. That is the model that God has given us. And so it's right that we specifically as men take time to prepare ourselves and to think about leadership. So we'll cover everything from, over the course of our, of our years together, we'll cover everything from systematic theology to how do we live as, as pure men in the area of sexuality, how do we study the Bible, how, 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 how can we be a godly husband, a godly father, um, even how, how can you, for those of you men that are in the grandparenting stage, how does that look and how can you continue to shepherd the next generation I just want to talk about topics that will help us as men. So in thinking about where to begin, uh, it was difficult because we could begin almost in any of those places and it would be fine. But I wanted to begin in where I felt was the most logical place, and and that is with the gospel itself. Uh, Not in the sense that, not so much as we did on Sunday to go through 
the nuts and bolts of the gospel in that aspect, but rather to understand this, that as we grow as, as believers, um, we don't grow beyond the gospel. You know, the gospel, I know in my early Christian years, the, the thinking was, well, the gospel is what you learned in the beginning, right? And then you, you moved on to deeper things. But when you move into those deeper things, what you begin to realize as you study the scripture is we, we grow in the depth of our understanding and application of the gospel itself. That those other theological truths find, find their root and their foundation in the gospel. And, and so it is our, our, our joy and it's imperative for us as, as men and as leaders of our homes to have a deepening understanding of the gospel a deepening application of the gospel. Because as you think about leading your wife, what are you leading her in and to? When you think about leading your children, what are you leading them to and with? When you think about shepherding your own heart in the areas of, of sin and trying to grow in righteousness, well, how are you doing that? It comes back to a deeper understanding of the gospel and a deeper application of the gospel. So I want us to, to spend our time in Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to walk through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and uh, mostly camp out here. I, I'm pretty captivated by this chapter. I find myself back here often because, and I mentioned this on Sunday, if you want to memorize just one section of Scripture and really have the Gospel contained within it, this is a great place to look because... It deals so deeply with every aspect of our, our condition before Christ, uh, how God saved us, how that worked, and what he saved us to. To what end did he save us? And so we're going to look at that, but as we do so, uh, we're also going to be applying that in some very specific ways. And so feel free to ask questions. Uh, I want this to be an open time of discussion. And certainly when we get to the application time, I'm going to throw out some ideas, but, but mostly as food for thought, and I want to hear from you men on how, how those applications flesh out in our lives. So let's look at this text together, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let me just read the whole text, and then we're going to break it down into it, the parts that Paul focuses on here. Ephesians 2, 1, And you were dead... In your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, he begins in verse 1 with what I'm going to call our former condition. 
our former condition. He begins with what we were like and what was our state before we came to know Christ. And uh, I'm assuming that these verses are probably very familiar to you, but I want you to think intently about some of these concepts. Remember, he says there in verse 1, and you were dead. Notice he doesn't say, and you were sick, or and you were lacking. Um, he says, and you were dead. And from that, we, from here and other places, we have the doctrine that we call total depravity. Let me talk about total depravity for just a moment. Total depravity is sometimes misunderstood because it's thought that it means that we are as bad as we possibly could be. We are totally depraved in that sense. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means that our depravity, our sinfulness before Christ, our sinful nature, so permeated us that every aspect of our being was tainted and permeated with sin. Total in the sense that it totally, it, it hit every part of us. Uh, our thinking was depraved. Our, our, our desires was depraved. Our actions were depraved. In God's common grace, He does not allow us to be as bad as we could be. Right? Um, that's why you see some people who are, are not believers, and people are tempted to say, well, he's not a believer, but he's a good guy. What we mean is, he, generally, he's... He's a nice person to be around, for the most part, at least outwardly. How does that happen if someone's not a believer? How can, how can unbelievers even give their, of their money to, to good causes? And how can they help old ladies across the street and you be polite? Well, that's God's common grace. We are not as bad as we could be. But that, that total depravity taints every part of us. And it's important to understand this aspect of our condition before Christ. And you were dead. That is, you had no hope in and of yourself to bring yourself out of that deadness, right? We think about the state of death. That is a situation in which that person is totally dependent on an outside force to do something if the state of deadness is going to change, right? And that's the spiritual picture that Paul paints of us before Christ. And we're dead. Dead in what way? In our trespasses and sins, that is, again, total, total depravity, that our sin <clears throat> permeated us, and that had some uh, specific effects, some out outward manifestations. Um, but before he gets to those outward manifestations, listen, listen to this. He says, talking about our sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Notice those two phrases, according to, he uses it twice, and he uses those phrases to describe the word walked. Now the word walked is a common word in the scripture that often talks about a pattern of life. He doesn't mean actually walking, but he means living. That you, you lived, you and I both formerly lived as a pattern of life, in lockstep with the world. That our, our sinfulness was according to, he says two things. One, the world, and the other is, he's talking about Satan, the prince of the power of the air. The one who influences uh, the world system. And this is so important for us to understand. When he says according to the course of this world, he's talking about this fallen world and the fallen world system that he then identifies Satan as being, in a sense, as God allows him for this time, 
as head of that sinful system. That Satan is, is working within the world these sinful ideologies that affect the way we think, that affect the way we live, that affect the standards of morality in the world. When we think about Satan's activity in the world, he is not um, indwelling uh, every individual or anything like that. He's not omnipresent in the way that God is. So how is it that he can affect the world as a whole? It's through this world system that he creates, through ideologies, um, through false religion. <clears throat> so we, we talk about Hollywood, for example, as having an agenda, right? And it does. We, we see it in TV shows and movies and commercials. But that agenda is not really coming from Hollywood. Hollywood is a, a funnel, right, through which the world system shows itself. And I think that's important for us to understand because we can get really angry at individuals. We can get really angry at even uh, America or the United States and the state of things or, or whoever you want to get angry at. But realize that the fallen world is trapped in a system. They're in lockstep with a system that is dominated by the enemy. And the ultimate source behind all of those ideologies and the reason that there are now homosexuals in every storyline and there are this and that and, and we're, we're, we're not only to, to accept these things but to agree that they're morally good. Where's all that coming from? And it's not just some producer in Hollywood. It is part of this system. And that, that helps us then to understand that you and I, we were trapped in that system until the Lord rescued us. Mm -hmm. In different degrees, we may have struggled with different kinds of sin, but we were trapped in that same system. And, and we walked, as Paul said, according to it. It was the pattern of our life. Whether you were saved at 8 or 80, it, it, that is and was true, uh, true of us. Not, not currently, but it was true of us. And that then showed itself in a number of ways, as Paul said. He goes on to say, among them, we too all formally lived. I like the emphasis there because we can't escape it. I think when, when we have been saved sometimes for a long time, by God's grace, it becomes harder and harder to remember or think of ourselves in the way we were before Christ. Um, we don't, it's not that we forget our sins, uh, but, but we're, we don't think that way anymore. I don't speak that way anymore. We don't live that way anymore. And the longer you don't live that way anymore, you almost kind of start to, you don't really think this, but live like, well, I've always been saved. This is just kind of how I've always been. It's not. It, it, among them, we too all formally lived. That's how we were. And, and that, that should produce in us compassion for the lost, right? And, and, and a humility, realizing if God had not intervened in my life, I'd be that TV producer trying to push these things. I would be that guy that you see on the street and he's ruined his life. Or I'd, I'd be this guy or that guy. That, if it were not for the Lord, I'd be in a ditch somewhere. Either actually or, or, or in my sin, I would be in a ditch living my life for myself. And notice how this sinful living expressed itself. We lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Two things, the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. That, that phrase, indulging the desires, literally is translated doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. The idea is this idea of slavery. We were bound to our sinful nature. That's just who we were. 
And there was no escaping that. We were in these cyclical patterns of sin and the way we think, thought, and the way we spoke, and the way we acted. The word lust is a, a word that we often associate with sexual sin, and certainly in, in certain contexts it means that. But the word lust really is a word for strong desire. It actually can be used in a positive sense to have a strong desire for something good. But usually it's used for strong desires in regard to sinful things, as it's used here. And so he's saying, in the strong desire, the passions of the flesh. The flesh is that part of us uh, that is, in our case as Christians now, is yet to be redeemed. We have a new nature in Christ. But before Christ, we were bound to that flesh. We did its bidding. <clears throat> when the flesh wanted something, we took it. And sometimes you see this in unbelievers where it seems like there is an outward facade that they are able to sort of corral their flesh. Maybe they stop smoking, or they stop drinking, or, or some other thing. But what you have to understand is that in every case, all that means is that another aspect of their flesh won out over that aspect of the flesh. For instance, they were tired of joblessness, didn't want to lose their wife, uh, they, they, they wanted respect in society, whatever it is. That other desire of the flesh became strong enough to put at bay this desire of the flesh. But it's not a genuine growth in righteousness. The only way that we can truly grow in righteousness and kill sin for the right reasons and truly eradicate it um, uh, is when Christ gets a hold of us and gives us a new nature. Notice he says we're doing the will of or indulging the desires of two things, the flesh and of the mind. Now, <clears throat> the mind is the place where the battle with sin is won or lost. Um, when you think about where, where is it that the flesh has its, its control center, Right? Where, where do our, our impulses and things find their, uh, their beachhead? It, it's in our minds. We, 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 even if it's for a short amount of time, sinful actions or words begin with sinful thoughts, right? Sinful responses to what's going on or sinful desires. We don't just do things mindlessly like animals by instinct. Our minds begin to oftentimes... The Bible calls uh, sinful men inventors of evil. Well, how, how are we doing that? Because in our minds, before Christ, we're dwelling on sin, even crafting sin, crafting how we're going to carry it out, um, and, and sort of just living and sitting in that sin. <clears throat> we were captive to a sinful mind, and that mind was dominated by the flesh that then drove our sinful actions. This is who we were, and it is who sinful unbelievers are still. And were, keep reading, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. This was the result, the consequence of our sinful living. We were by nature children of wrath. Children of wrath, that is, we were deserving of God's wrath, right? That that was the right that we were due for our sin. And this was by nature. I mean, from, from our very nature, from, the, from birth, we were children of wrath. And I, I love that he adds that line, even as the rest. Because again, while we don't need to dwell on our past sinful life, we certainly don't need to forget where we have come from, where we, what we've been brought out of. We were even as the rest. 
And so while we are to separate ourselves from sin and, and hate sin and not indulge in sin, as we look at sinners who are trapped in this, we have to have a sense of compassion and real, realism and humility to say, that's where I would be if God had not pulled me out. That is, in a nutshell, our former condition. Um, and we'll talk about some more of the implications of that here in a moment. But secondly, notice our God's intervention. Our God's intervention. But God. But God. That, that's so important guys to understand. He doesn't say, but we woke up. But we decided. Right? There's no we or I anyway. But God. God made a decision in eternity past that came to be reality in, in at some point in time. But God, and what he's going to do is he's going to list three character traits about God and then three actions of God based on those character traits. Three character traits, three actions. But God, three character traits, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, even when we were dead. Because Being rich in mercy is where he begins. Let's talk about this for just a moment. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Somebody can answer back to you. What's the difference between the two words? Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Right. And God is rich in both. Right? He begins first with, with mercy. That is, and this is the, that's, that's right, because we were children of wrath. So we deserve that wrath. That was our due. But in his mercy, he withheld from us what we deserved. Secondly, because of his great love, and I like the way that Paul says this. It's interesting. Because of his great love with which he loved us. He doesn't say... Because of how lovable God saw us to be, right? <laughs> because of His great love, that is because God, at His very nature, has this divine love, this perfect love, and He chose to love us with it, right? He chose to employ it on us, is the way that's written. Because of His great love, that is an aspect of His nature and character, with which He then loved us. Uh, that's just a, a, a wonderful way to say that, and it, it brings such clarity to what salvation was. Uh, so we, we have had no part in this so far, right? We've, we've done nothing. This is all based on God's character. Because of His mercy, because of His love that He employed and or, or, or used put, put upon us. Thirdly, even when we were dead, I think this highlights that, that grace aspect of God giving to us when we, <clears throat> when we don't deserve it, even when we were dead in our transgressions. So our state had not changed. Nothing in us had drawn God to us to make us attractive to Him. But solely based upon these three aspects of His character, He then acts upon us. And He does, Paul says, three things. One, He made us alive. He raised us up, secondly, and he seated us. Those are the three actions that he, he gives here. He made us alive, raised us up, and he seated us. Let's look at the first of those. But God, because of these three character traits, or out of those three character traits, made us alive. That is, he fixed our deadness. He spoke into that deadness and brought us to life. He breathed new spiritual life into us, which was the only way 
that it was possible, just as today, if a person is dead, someone has to have the power to give them life if that situation is going to change. The same was true of us. God fixed that issue, intervened into our dead state, and made us alive. And I want you to notice that each of these actions are connected to Christ. To get, that is, He made us alive together with Christ. There is no making us alive apart from Christ. All of this comes through what the Son has accomplished on our behalf. Right? He, he, was, he's, he is, in a sense, able to extend this grace and mercy to us because He's purchased it for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. That, that's key to understand that the God, the Christ is the medium through which each of these actions takes place. And in sort of a parenthetical statement, he says, by grace you have been saved. And that's almost an understatement at this point, right? As we begin to look at this. Of course, it's, it's been, he's saying, this, this happened outside of you, right? This was done to you by a holy and good God. Secondly, and raised us up, notice, with him. Again, the emphasis on Christ, raised us up. This is us coming to new life again with Jesus Christ. The same sort of emphasis. But he not only raised us up with him, he seated us with him. Here's the idea that as Christ is exalted, that God in his kindness has not simply just saved us, but the Bible speaks of us as being in Christ, and that we are united with Christ in a unique and mysterious and wonderful way. So that, so much that, was Christ, as Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father, it's as if we are now with him, because we are united with him. Now think about that. God took you from your dead state, breathed new life into you, and then united you and I to his Son, so that we are now even exalted with Christ. We are with him. We are with him now, even though even though we are for this time still here, we are so knit together with him that it's as if he raised us up, Lisa could say, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, notice the emphasis on that. All of this comes through Christ. Now that makes us ask the question, why? Why did he do this? Notice that phrase after in Christ Jesus, that that Two, those two words, so that. So that. This purpose statement. Why has he done this to us? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Uh, a succinct way to say that is for his own glory. That's why he's done this. He's done this for his own glory. I think sometimes we misunderstand that and we think, that seems odd to us because we are so instructed in it that as believers we're not to do anything for our own glory, right? We're not to live to exalt ourselves. So how is it and why is it that God can say, essentially he's done this to reveal the riches of his grace and kindness, to reveal himself, to put himself on display in Christ? Well, understand that the reason it's wrong for us to do that is because we have no right to it, Right? We have no right, we have no glory to be displayed that's not been given to us. If we have a glory, it's because of Christ. If we have anything lovely or, or praiseworthy, it's a gift from Christ. God is the, the being, the only being in the universe that is worthy of praise. He's, he's legitimately worthy of praise. 
And God always does what is right and good. And, it, and so it is legitimately right of God to put himself on display and even exalt himself because he is the being in the universe that's worthy of that, that of whom it is right to do so. And so as he glorifies himself and draws us then to see him in his glory and to give him praise and, and worship, that is right. That is the best thing that we can do. And so he's drawing us to do that which is excellent and right. It is absolutely right for God to glorify himself, and it is an abomination for any other being to seek to do that for themselves, because he alone is worthy. You can, if you're taking notes, write down a couple of references, Ephesians 1.6, Ephesians 1.12, and Ephesians 1.14. All of those are in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. In each of those places in chapter 1, which also is heavily influenced by this explanation of God's election and predestination, in each of those places he says, to the praise of his glory. To the, why has he done this? To the praise of his glory. It's like a refrain. Uh, three times he says it. And this is kind of another way to say the same thing. He did this so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now notice thirdly, our gracious salvation. Our gracious salvation. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is perhaps the most familiar uh, section of this, this passage. Uh, hopefully you have that memorized. If you don't, I certainly recommend it and encourage you to do so. But it's almost as if now he... He summarizes the truth that he's been getting at the whole time in case we missed the implications of what it means that we were dead and now made alive by God. He says, for by grace you've been saved. This has been extended to you not based upon anything within you or anything you've done. It's been done solely by the goodness of God in Christ. And then he says, this is the first aspect of this that has anything to do with our action through faith. So the first time he says anything about our salvation has anything at all to do with us responding or, or having anything. And it's a matter of faith, having faith in, the, in this Christ through whom he has redeemed us. But then he quickly even says about our faith, and that not of yourselves. So he tells us the first aspect of this, and it is true, you must have true repenting faith. In Jesus Christ to be redeemed. But where does that come from? Even that ability to respond. It's not from yourself. It is a gift of God. He, we do exercise real faith. But we do so in response to the regenerating work of God within us. Where he breathes that new life into us. And even gives us the capacity to believe and to express that faith to in and to the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> So the first aspect of that gracious salvation is, is faith. It's done through faith, which also is not of ourselves. And secondly, he, he, he con contrasts our being saved by grace with the opposite. 
so that it's very clear. Not as a result of works. The opposite, of course, of, of a grace-based salvation is a works-based salvation. And he wants to be very clear. Not as a result of works. Not as a result of anything that you have done. And, of course, every false religion that attaches itself to some version of the Christian, doc Christian doctrine misses it on this point. It adds, they add, some form of works to the gospel. Catholicism does this. Um, the Mormons do this. Jehovah's Witnesses do this. Um, even those, those religions that don't have any basis in Christianity... When they come to answering the question of how can a man be made right with God, there is some amount of, well, you just have to do this. You just have to do these things. That is not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is that we are saved by grace, that is, by the grace of our God who acts upon us, not as a result of works, and the reason or the result of that, <clears throat> so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. We have no personal credit in our salvation. Nothing that we have done can be um, added to or be made the basis of our salvation. And so the only response then is to the praise of His glory, right? To worship God, to put God on display that He has redeemed us. Even in the response aspect of our salvation, how we respond to repentance and faith, the Scripture's clear in both, that both repentance and faith are granted to us, given to us by God. And then finally, number four, our present commission. Our present commission. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is important for us to understand. It's not that works have no part in our salvation in this sense. We are not saved at all by works, but we are saved unto good works. Right? This, this is where it gets confusing for some people. The, where, where does works come in? Because works are emphasized in the Bible. But for what? And from what? Understand that when, when God saved you, He did not save you just to sort of wipe the slate clean and just leave you there, right? The idea was to bring you to new life so that you would then, as a response to that, live righteously before Him. It is true that He imputes the righteousness of Christ to us, that justification. That is, how, he, how can He see us as truly righteous? Well, He sees us through the lens of Christ. But from the moment that we are made new, he begins to, to actually cause us to walk in righteousness. So that added to that in, imputed righteousness is a real righteousness in which we are walking and growing. Not in perfection, but the, where we are being sanctified in this life. And one day we will be glorified and walk in perfect righteousness. Um, that has always been his plan. And I love verse 10 because we often stop. We often stop at verses 8 and 9 because they are, they are wonderful. But recognize, He has saved us so that we would actually walk in righteousness. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And notice that these works were also predestined, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So He is the author of our salvation. 
and he energizes and works within us for the purpose of sanctification, and he'll be the author of our glorification. And so we as believers need to be busy about uh, doing the work of righteousness, the working out our faith. This is where, I don't know how many of you were familiar with the cross-centered sanctification movement. Um, Tolly and Tavidjian and others were big proponents of that. It's dying off, um, but it's not, not fully gone yet. Here, is, here was the, the, the argument, is that, that all we need to do in sanctification is just dwell on our justification. You just need to think about the fact that you're saved. And when you're dealing with sin, just go back and remember that you're saved, remind yourself that you're saved, and that's how we battle sin. What I want you to see is the balance. The reason I began with the gospel is because we are to dwell on the gospel, and we are to deepen in our understanding of the gospel, and the gospel is a major part of our sanctification. But the gospel also tells us here in verse 10 that we were saved unto a purpose, and that is that we are to do good works and that the commands of Scripture are real commands and that we are to also focus on what, what real instruction? Be anxious for nothing. We, what does that mean? It means be anxious for nothing. Put in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. We, it is okay and right for us to not only focus on the gospel and the gospel implications, but the actual commands of Scripture, because that is what God has saved us unto. He has saved us unto good works. And so we must be busy proclaiming the gospel, dwelling on the gospel, yes, but we must be busy about fulfilling the commands in Scripture by the power of the Spirit, not in our own efforts, but seeking to grow in fulfilling those things as the Spirit enables us, and He continues to instruct us in those things through the Word of God. Now, this is a, a flyby, of course, of a very wonderful passage. Um, and I just wanted to give you the, the larger structure and remind you of those, those big movements. Our life before Christ... God's intervention in our life and our gracious salvation and then what is that supposed to result in? But now I want us to get to the application of this and I, and I want to think about how as men, as husbands, as fathers, how does the gospel and understanding these implications affect us? And I, I could have written down probably a hundred, but what I did is I, I wrote down four aspects of application and I want to I want to just give the the title or the thought and then I want us to talk about it and how that truth really I pulled out four key truths and I want us to apply those truths to our lives here's truth number one God is the author of our faith and salvation God is the author of our faith and salvation what are the implications of that for, and there are many, so I'm not, I'm not pretending that we're going to exhaust them. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your role as a husband, as a father, as a man of the world. Um, what are the implications? How should it affect us, the truth that God's the author of our faith and salvation? No boasting. Yeah, it kills boasting and promotes humility when we understand that. That's right. Can't be taken away. Yeah, the assurance of that. That's what I wrote down. The fact that if, if God is the author, 
as, as Jesus said, no one can take them from my Father's hand. No one can take them from my hand. We cannot be ripped. Or, and we cannot jump if we were genuinely in his, his hand. We can't jump out either. What else? She calls us to worship. Yeah, it produces an adoration, uh, a worship of God. God-centered. Yeah, it's a God-centered mentality, God-centered life. What others? He's the beginning of my redemption. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing at Romans 2 4. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no way I could have worked it <laughs> Right. There's no way I could have done it. He's the beginning of my redemption. What about just a, a love for God? Okay, we talked about worship, but. A, a true love for him and what he has done for us. I mean, it, when we really get it, that I, I had nothing to do with it. In fact, I was in the middle of rebelling and running away from him when he sought me and when he brought me to himself. It ought to produce a, a deep love and appreciation, of, of, of an admiration that, uh, that just doesn't go away, and a, a true affection for Christ. You know, men, when you sing of these things, and when you pray about these things, when you talk about these things, does that affect you? Do you feel your heart move when the realities of what God has done for you hit home? Because it should. I'm not saying that you go around crying all day long, but I am saying that when it should grip you. I'd say every day. It It should just... When you when it just kind of hits you and, and you realize the truth that you've known, but it just hits you again. God did that. God saved me. It should hit us, right? And it should promote within us a love for Him and a love for others, uh, based upon what He's done. We we'll question ourselves too about the why. <clears throat> we we ask why would He choose me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that going back to what He did, and like you said, don't go off while crying, but. Every day, it's like I just, I don't know. It's amazing that he chose me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I can't boast about it, nor do I want to, because I want to be able to take that and show it up. Right. So, yeah. One of the first questions you want to ask why in the world would you do Exactly. Because <laughs> we know ourselves. But here's what always gets me is that he knows me better than I know myself. He knows sins that I've done that I don't even know I've committed because in my pride, I didn't see them or whatever it is. And he knows it's like we're laid before him, right? Laid bare. It's, it's like a, a child playing hide-and-go-seek when my kids were two, and they would go hide, and I'm watching them hide, right? <coughs> and I see them, and they're, they're doing this, you know? <laughs> that, that's how our sin is before God. And yet, in his grace, he chose us. Um, that should affect us. And I think if it doesn't affect us, then we either have not fully understood it, or, or even perhaps, if it truly just, just doesn't affect you, then perhaps you have not really come to know Him, to be honest. Because when we know God, uh, it, 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 when you know that truth and it's real of you, it, it just grabs a hold of you at times and won't let go, right? I think the strongest testimony we can give to non believers <clears throat> is just carrying ourselves with a profound sense of gratitude. 
mm-hmm. in everything we do. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest yeah. way to be open with a non-believer. Yeah, I think you're, you're right, and you hit on something important in that. That gratitude that begins with the gratitude for our salvation quickly works itself down to realize, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve my family. I don't deserve my house. I don't deserve the clothes that I'm wearing. I don't deserve the breath in my lungs. You start to realize, oh, I don't deserve anything. And so everything becomes an open hand of, well, how, how can I use it then for the, for the kingdom of God? Mm. And so I think you're right. It does. It filters down into every aspect of our lives. Mm. What about this? Um, we, going back to that first point that he makes, we were once dead in sin, living according to our fleshly desires. We were once dead in sin, living according to our fleshly desires. What are some of the applications? How should that truth affect us? And there's some overlap in these, but I want you to think specifically. And think again about not just uh, our, our personal life, but how it should affect the way we deal with other people. All right? We were once dead in sin, living according to our fleshly desires. Which means the way we react to situations. We don't either say things we should say all the time. Uh, no barriers for conversation that leads to something else with a friend talking about something that normally would maybe do something that's not uh, righteous. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it changes. I think it changes the way that we can be with other people, from disgust to sympathy. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we don't. We're, sin is sin is disgusting. Our sin was disgusting. You know, but what do you expect somebody who's dead in their sin without Christ? What do you expect them to do? You mm-hmm. know, they're living out. They're they're enslaved to that master. You know, there's a pity. There, rather than a, you know, a hate mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, because we, we we know that that's that's our story. Yeah, that we are just as we were at one time, just as subject <clears throat> to the same fleshly desires. Yeah, I could tag on to that. Yeah, just like a, a humble concern, but yeah, like a true concern and compassion for the lost. Mm-hmm. Have, having that eternal mindset, what you didn't you didn't know or have before when your eyes were closed. You know, when your heart was hard. Mm-hmm. You know, now you have that. Every day you, you wake up with more of that long term, you know, what's the goal at the end of the tunnel? What's that light at the end of the tunnel? It's that eternal mm-hmm. mindset of everything that you do, everything you say, everything you project to the world is through the eyes of not your own anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it makes you. Hate the sin that still remains. Mm-hmm. You really yeah. dwell on where you came from and understand that God pulled you from that. You see the kind of the stench of death still on you, mm-hmm. and it makes you hate that more. Mm. Yeah. In increasing measure, you know, I think uh, the more you grow in righteousness, righteousness, the more sinful you feel. <laughs> to where, the, in actuality, you were here and by God's grace. You know, you're here. But you feel like you're here because you see sin in such minute levels, right? Mm-hmm. Now we now we're dealing with we're judging the thoughts and intentions of our actions and things, and that's good. But uh, but it can feel overwhelming at times because our sin now becomes so clear, and that's God's grace because now we can confess it, right, and repent of it. 
but it can be, at times, if we let it, it can be almost in a harmful way, a beat down to where we're focusing on our sin to an, in a way that God didn't intend. Um, but absolutely, it, it makes you hate sin and want to pursue righteousness. What about this? Third, a third truth. God set His love on us in the midst of our rebellion. God set His love on us in the midst while we were dead in our transgressions. God set His love on us in the midst of our rebellion. How should that affect us? Everybody's in a, in a state of rebellion. God could have walked by and not extend His grace and mercy to us. Us like maybe our friend, brother, sister, whatever, family member, colleague at work. He's still in his trespass. God in His goodness, sure, He had the choice. He made the choice to pick us up, to remove us from what we were to give us life. He, he could have walked by and just not even bother. He did not do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Give us a sense of gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank God he didn't pass us by. Because you know about that. <clears throat> Good song about that. What else? I think when we're interacting with other people, it helps us understand that there's not really anyone too far, because we all started from the same place. Because mm-hmm. um, I think we're tempted to say, I mean, I know there's a point where you have to say, okay, they're, they're openly ridiculing and mocking the gospel, but mm-hmm. we have a temptation, I think, at least I have a temptation to think, looking outwardly at their sins and the things that they enjoy currently while they're living in sin, puts them too far out of reach of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it gives us a, a new perspective on love, just in general, and how we treat everybody. Whether it's somebody that we know and love, or somebody speaking out against the gospel, or openly sinning, it helps us understand that love is an action, is something that we choose, mm-hmm. and we respond with patience. I think as we grow in that. Yeah. I think so too. I was thinking about that aspect because I think this particular one is really helpful in our closest relationships. Uh, think of your wife, your kids, <clears throat> the, you know, the family members where God set his love on us, right? It was not drawn out of him. And so with your wife, yeah, you know, you set your love on her every day, every moment of the day, regardless of how, what kind of day she's having. What kind, of, what kind of wife she's been that day or that week or that year. You set your love on her. You pursue her in love. Your children. Your children ever rebel against your authority? What did God do when we were in rebellion against his authority? He set his love on us. Um, he, uh, he could have squashed us like a bug and would have been right to do it. But he did do that. And he calls us. It doesn't mean we don't discipline our children. But it does affect the way we discipline our children, Right? Um, it brings a grace and a love. Where your kids should feel those discipline moments, guys, for, you, for those of you that have kids, they should walk away from that. And I'm speaking to myself too. Feeling 
this uh, overwhelming sense of love for them. Even as you speak truth to them, sometimes hard truth, even as maybe there's physical punishment that comes as a consequence for their sin, in the midst of that consequence, they should feel, oh, my dad loves me, right? And those are great gospel opportunities to tell them there's another who loves you more and you need him, right? I just remembering that, bringing that to mind. With our wives, it produces a tenderness that I, I set my love on this lady. And the good news is, I mean, unlike us towards God, where there was nothing in us that drew God to us, you married your wife, right? So at some point, something drew you to us, right? So, so we got a leg up here. Like, there are things that draw us to our wives. But, but we can in our sins um, choose for moments to put that aside and act sinfully towards them. We have to set our love on them as well. Let me bring our minds to one more before we run out of time. But number four, God saved us unto good works. God saved us unto good works. What, what, how should that truth play out in our lives? <clears throat> well, I think it's not, you know, our salvation's not the end, right? There has to be some response to, to that salvation. We've got to people should see that in our lives by how we act, how we speak, what our conduct is. We should be actively seeking to share what we have with others so that they too, like mm-hmm. God's grace, can yeah. see that as well. I think that helps keep our lives in check also before we do something our sin nature would want us to do, reacting, make us think, okay, how, how am I really supposed to act on this? Mm-hmm. Right? What am I supposed to say? Mm-hmm. What do I want to say? Right. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Is this thought that God prepared already these works ahead of us? These works, <clears throat> I understand, as events, circumstances of your life that are ahead of you. God already prepared them. And sometimes when you're in the midst of it, what is good in this? But overall, God, seeing the whole course of your life, He prepared them. They're good. They serve a purpose. Things that are happening in our life are not, they have a purpose. There's a, there's a target. There's something that uh, has a purpose. It's not aimless. Yeah. Hmm. I think it gives us a sense of humility, too, to understand that, that the good works we do are in response to Him. It's not something that originates in us. Mm-hmm. We're just, you know, that's our response and gratitude to all He's done. Right. And to know that even that was in His preordaining, mm-hmm. His slave mm-hmm. and magnifying yeah. to, to ponder. Prepared them beforehand, they'll be walking up. Yeah, I think the fact that he's the author of our salvation gives him the right to dictate what it's to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, sometimes men, we fall into that that trap of, of believing, okay, my salvation was all by grace. But now I've entered into this workspace relationship with God where I'm now earning his favor in salvation by my works. That's not what that said. Is that what that said? 
It is a it is a grace motivated, love propelled service of God that is built upon a foundation of relationship that cannot change. Right? If a person is genuinely in Christ, they that relationship has gone from judge to father, right? In the sense that we stood before God in our unbelief only as judge. We knew God as judge and creator, right? He brought us out of the courtroom through Christ, and now we're in a family with God. So that means, yes, our sin can put distance between us and the Father. Just like when my son sins against me, there is some distance there until that is made right. But he can never stop being my son, right? Mm -hmm. And he's not working and obeying in order to earn my continual love as a father. It's my love is poured out upon him, you know, not, not perfectly like God's is. But, so just understand the relationship that you're now in. And yes, when we sin, we need to repent, and it puts distance between us and God, but it does not remove us from him, and he's not just waiting to zap us all day long. I think that's important for us to keep in mind. We're, we're sort of like clay in the potter's hands. He's, uh, he has purpose for us, and... We'll, we'll recognize what it is when we see it, I think. <clears throat> just just the opposite of waiting to zap us. He's waiting to show us the mercies he's set on us mm -hmm. through history. He has good work to come with him. Yeah. <clears throat> well, man, I've really enjoyed our time. I hope you have as well. It's uh, been edifying for me. This is the kind of uh, atmosphere that I hope for these to continue to be. We'll have some, we'll set our minds upon something, and then we'll We'll beat it up, discuss it, apply it together. Um, and I hope it's encouragement to you. Um, I was going to ask, Joel, would you close us in prayer? Almighty God, Lord, we just stop for a moment and just reflect on your goodness to us. Or as we heard today, just the, the outflow of your love for us. Or that those of us in Christ were dead. Or that there was nothing in of ourselves that made us for uh, your goodness to be poured upon us. Lord, that you made us alive in Christ. Lord, and as we just discussed, the outflow of that is the love that we now have for you. Lord, that overflows in good works. Lord, that even the faith that you have given us is from you and the good works are from you. So Lord, I pray that the things that we've learned today or the things that we're reminded of would just overflow in our, grace, or in our um, obedience to you and our love for you and how we interact with the lost and how we interact with those in our church and how we interact with our spouse and with our children or that we would just be an overflow of your grace or that you would use us even today for your kingdom that we would um, be a light in this dark world that we would be reminded that those around us are dead Lord and that they are on the path of destruction, and that they need your grace, Lord, and that we would just have an overflow of love for them. Lord, I just pray that you go with us today, that we would meditate on these truths, that we would not leave here um, the same. In your name we pray.